0: two, three. Okay. I'm sure we'll adjust the volume as we go. Um, Yes, so we're in our series, The Fruit of the Spirit, and we're working our way through Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to read most of the chapter because it's a very important chapter. It's the kind of chapter that really should be ingrained in our hearts. We should know it very well. So if you're hearing it again for the the third or the fifth time this month, that's probably not a bad thing. Galatians 5 starts off talking about circumcision. Now that is a rather strange thing to be talking about in 2017 on a Sunday morning. Oh, 2018. Wow. Gee, get with it. Um... And, and when we come across the word circumcision in this passage, we need, to, we need to see it as something epitomizing the whole of the Jewish law. Circumcision was, after all, the sign of the covenant. When God made a, a covenant with Abram, he said, I want you to practice circumcision among the, the males. And this is going to be the sign of the covenant uh, and, and really the most fundamental aspect of keeping the law. So when we read Galatians 5 and we come across the concept of circumcision, in your minds just be thinking this whole idea of obeying God's covenantal law. So let's read together with that in mind. Galatians 5 verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Jump to verse 7. Galatians, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? Verse 11, Paul reflecting now. Brothers, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished as for those agitators i wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves the greek that's a euphemism the greeks are a little bit more clear amputate themselves verse 7 you my brothers were called to be free but don't let your don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature rather serve one another in love The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. The sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, etc. I warn you, as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against these things there is no law. I just want to recap the the overall message of this chapter before we zoom into the three verses that I've been given to speak on today, verses 13 to 15. What we need to understand about this letter to the Galatian church is that these Galatian Christians were predominantly Gentiles, They're living in what we now call Turkey. And they've obviously heard the gospel, and they've become Christians. And there is a group of people called the Judaizers, who who were Jewish Christians, in inverted commas, and they were finding all the Gentiles they could and telling them, look, if you want to be a Christian, you must also obey the Jewish law. And you need to be circumcised, for starters. So there's this well-known group called the Judaizers presenting this message. And the letter to the Galatians is written to address this sect and this group of influencers. And as you know from the previous sermons in this series, Paul's message is, that is a total distortion of the gospel. And what's the deeper issue here? It's this idea that Christ's death on the cross is not enough for our salvation. That's the the fundamental idea at stake here. The Judaizers were teaching, yes, we are saved, we are made right with God because of Christ's death on the cross and because we obey God's law. And Paul's message is, no, that is a distortion of the gospel. It's not we are saved because of Christ's death on the cross and our own good works. It's just Christ's death on the cross that saves us. And friends, the reason I'm stressing this today is that many of us as Christians today still think like this. We don't want to add circumcision to our faith. But we do often fall into the trap of thinking that my favor with God rests on Christ's death on the cross and how well I've been performing as a Christian. You know, people sometimes make deals with God. You know, they say, God, if if I'm going to do this, this, and this, and then, you know, will you do that? And all this kind of deal-making with God We we can get into it very subtly. How many of you have ever thought that if you really want God to answer your prayer, or to love you, or to like you, that you need to make sure you're having your quiet time, that you're giving generously to the church, that you're doing a whole lot of good things? Come on, be honest. How many of us think like this? That if we want to please God, it's Christ's death on the cross, And the good stuff we're doing to make sure we're in God's good books. Friends, this problem here in Galatians chapter 5, it's not just a problem from back then. It's as much in the church today. And the amazing thing of the gospel is that there isn't anything else we have to do to earn God's favor in this world. It's just Christ's death on the cross. And if we fall into the trap of thinking, yes, it's Christ's death on the cross, but it's also what I'm doing and how I'm performing, we have become alienated from Christ. We have fallen from grace, and Christ is of no use to us. That's the message of Galatians chapter 5, and it's pretty powerful stuff. I like what Jonathan Edwards said. When he made the point, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Okay, maybe not everybody believes that. It's a rather reformed perspective, but I think he's got something good to say there. The specific section I'm going to deal with today is verse 13. So let's look at that again. You, my brothers, you were called to be free. But don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. We're we're looking at this call to freedom. Freedom means many different things to different people, does it not? Freedom can be a brand. Come to know that. Freedom can mean having no restraints upon your life. We talk about freedom of speech, freedom of movement. After the Second World War, Norman Rockwell did uh, four paintings expressing the four freedoms that were very important at that time. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. So people understand freedom in many different ways. But our question is, what is the freedom that is being spoken about here in in verse 13? They're those paintings, by the way. Famous oil paintings. What What is the meaning of freedom in verse 13 when Paul says it is for freedom that Christ died? And a common mistake people make in interpreting the Bible is to take the word in the Bible and to give it the meaning that they want to give it. But we always need to ask ourselves, what what did the author intend when he used that word freedom? What is the specific freedom that Paul is writing about here in verse 13? Because that's the only thing that matters. It doesn't matter what our English understanding of freedom is. It's what Paul meant By that term. And in order to find out what he meant, we need to look at the context, the immediate context and the broader context, to see what Paul means by the term freedom. He's not talking about physical freedom, believe it or not. People in jail can be free in Christ. He's not talking about freedom of speech. That's very important and we love it in our day and age. He's not talking about freedom of speech. He's not even talking about political freedom. You can be under an oppressive political regime and be free in Christ. Another misunderstanding in the church is that biblical freedom means we're free to do whatever we want in the church. But what is the freedom being spoken about here? Well, let's look at the context in verse 1 of Galatians 5. Paul talks about freedom. He says in verse 1, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now these Gentile Christians had not been slaves, or probably most of them not slaves. So the freedom being spoken about here by Paul is the freedom from having to obey the Jewish law. There were 613 laws that Jews had to obey. And that was like being under a very heavy burden, to live all of your life obeying 613 commandments. I don't know how many of of you have read this book, A Year of Living Biblically. It's by a secular Jew from New York. He's the guy who read through Encyclopedia Britannica you know, from A to Z, and then wrote a book about it. And he's done various other life experiments. Very funny guy, that's what he looks like. A.J. Jacobs, and he's a secular Jew in New York. But he decided for an experiment, he wanted to for one year live biblically and obey all of the 613 commandments found in the Old Testament. And it's well worth a read, and it's an eye-opener to what it can mean in this day and age to obey the Jewish law. I mean, not to wear clothing of different threads, not to be able to sit anywhere where it could, in fact, be ceremonially unclean. I mean, try traveling on a bus that way. Um, Stoning people that you know who are adulterers. And He landed up just tossing uh, some, some gravel on the shoe of, of a person that he knew was an adulterer. So he really did try very hard to, to obey all of God's law. But this is what we've been set free from as Christians. This is the freedom that Christ has won for us. It's freedom so that we don't have to be enslaved to obeying God's law. Again, in verses 3 and 4, we read about Paul having freedom in Christ, but people spying on the freedom he has in Christ, and they're wanting to make us slaves again. What's this freedom? Gee, it's not eating kosher food. It's not having to wash my hands in a certain way before I eat. Paul says he's free in Christ. This is the freedom, freedom from Jewish ceremony, Jewish law. Another hint about what this freedom is, is in verse 13, where it says, we've been called to be free, and then it says, don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, but rather use your freedom to love and serve others. This is also what Christian freedom is. Let me unpack this for you because it was kind of new to me as I was really studying this passage. Do we really need to be given freedom to be able to love and serve other people? And I think the answer is yes we do. By the way in the Greek here unfortunately you don't see it in the English. English Translations of the Bible do tend to make things a little easier so that the readers don't get upset. Um, but, but in the Greek, it says, do not use your freedom to, not, it doesn't say indulge, it says to be enslaved to your sinful nature. And that's the state that unbelievers are in. They're enslaved to their sinful nature. They're unable to do good. They're unable to do the right thing. They're enslaved to their sinful nature. And Paul, it's the word, uh, it's where we get the word doulos from, uh, not diakonos, which means serve. Doulos, it's a strong, it's slavery versus servant. So Paul says, don't use your freedom. To, to be enslaved to your sinful nature. Rather, be enslaved to one another in love. Do you see how strong that term is? But why do we need freedom to love and to serve? We, as Christians, we get set free from selfishness. We get set free from self-absorption. And this is what enables us to love and to serve others freely. This is also what biblical freedom is about. Freedom from yourself and self-interest and selfishness and self-absorption. Reminds me of Paul's words when he describes his philosophy of ministry. He uses these same concepts of freedom and and being a slave to people. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, Though I am free and I belong to no one, I make myself a slave to everyone to win them over. Paul was free to be a slave and to serve other people, to love other people. So in summary then, freedom in this passage means the freedom from having to to please God through good works and through observing the law. Yes, as Christians we do good works. We should want to do good works, but we do good works as a response to God's love in our lives. It's not to earn God's favor. Let's not ever fall into the trap of thinking that. It's also the freedom to be able to serve each other. That's why we must use this freedom and how we're to use it. Let's move on. The next section talks about summarizing the law and the way Jesus summarizes the whole of the Old Testament law. And if we want to know how to live, this is it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is Jesus, verse 14. Well, it's Paul quoting Jesus. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. When Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says it's that we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our strength and all of our mind and all of our soul. And he says in the second is kind of right there too. We must love our neighbor as we love It's actually a quote from the book of Moses, from Leviticus chapter 19. There we first read these words, Love your neighbor as yourself. So this goes right back to the beginning of Judaism. And you'll know all the passages where Jesus is asked. Here it is, Mark 12. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? And Jesus talks about loving God, and then he talks about, and love your neighbor as yourself, this quote from Leviticus. Again in Matthew 22, again in Luke 10. And there in Luke 10, Jesus defines for us exactly who is our neighbor. Who is this neighbor that we're to love like we love ourselves? And there we discover it's not just the people who live next door, or the people who are like us. In the story of the Good Samaritan, we find out that our neighbor is someone of a different race, someone who's very, very different to us. In fact, when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's talking about loving everyone in this world which I find a rather impossible task, don't you? It's why I believe we need to be given the freedom to love. Interestingly enough, Jesus, before his death, upgraded this commandment. Did you know that? He improved upon love your neighbor as you love yourself. Anybody know how he improved upon it? It got an upgrade. He said a new commandment just before he died. A new commandment I give you. Here's the upgrade. From now on, I want you to love people as I have loved you. And by this, everybody will know that you are my disciple. There it is, John 13 Jesus upgrading, love your neighbor as you love yourself. You see, some people don't actually love themselves that much. And that's also why they sometimes treat other people badly. So Jesus says, here's the new standard. I want you to love other people as I have loved you. I wonder why all men don't know that Jesus is the truth. Maybe it's, there's a link between the fact that we don't really love each other as Christ has loved us. Verse 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. This too is how husbands ought to love their wives. Husbands, love your wives, not based on how she looks, how she treats you, what she does. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loves us. That's, that's the standard, and I hope the same goes for wives. You, my brothers, you've been called to freedom, freedom to love. And the last thought in these three verses is this idea of being gracious to one another. And I'm going to end with this thought. In verse 15 it says, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Clearly this is metaphorical language. I don't think people really were biting each other in the Galatian church. But as I thought about this, I was amazed at just how much biting of people goes on. I mean we're all very familiar with this character claiming to have very sore teeth. This is Sauriz after he bit an Italian defender in uh, the 2014 World Cup. So, so clearly people do bite each other. Somebody suggested well the Snickers used it as an ad Uh, more satisfying than Italian, hashtag Luis Saures. And then the internet went crazy and thought maybe for the next game, uh, this is how he should um, dress up. But uh, people actually do bite one another quite a lot. And it's not just dogs that bite people. Uh, Here are the statistics for the United States in 2012 uh, in 2012, there were 42,000 human bites that needed medical attention. So someone in the United States is getting bitten by another human being every 12 minutes. So aren't you glad you live in South Africa? I mean, here we mainly just get bitten by dogs and, and ticks and fleas. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, you may be destroyed by each other. He's talking here about Christians that speak negatively to other people. People who who speak critical words. That's what it means to bite someone. They're just sitting quietly there and you come at them. It's talking about our speech. People that say harmful and toxic things to other people. And the warning here in Scripture is if we allow criticism and verbal attacks on people to go unchecked, we'll end up destroying each other. This happens in marriage all the time. Spouses can be so critical of each other, they break each other down with words. And eventually they destroy each other. This can happen in parent and child relationships. Usually when parents are hypercritical of their children, you should be doing that, you should be doing that, this one does it better than you won't. Well, it's biting and we can land up being destructive with our words. happens on social media. Sadly, I have had to stop posting things, thoughts, opinions, views, and the like on Facebook because I have found out we're living in a very intolerant age. And if somebody doesn't just like 1% of what you've shared or said, they have a massive go at you. There's something seriously wrong with how critical people are. It's this biting and devouring that actually lands up being a little bit destructive. That's why I've only ever sent out one tweet. (laughs) Can happen in a church community. Criticism and churches implode. Remember what James had to say about the tongue. The tongue is a small part of the body but it can set a great forest on fire. It's a world of evil. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself ignited by hell. The tongue is a very powerful thing. No man can tame the tongue. It's full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people, You've been made in God's likeness. My brothers, this should not be. Here's another proverb about the destructive power of language. A scoundrel plots evil. His speech is like a scorching fire. The other day I saw a lovely scribbled thing on a, on a whiteboard actually at a station of all places. And it simply said the difference between an argument and a discussion. Here it is. An argument is about who is right, and a discussion is about what is right. (laughs) Wow, I thought that was profound. Let me uh, summarize today as as I finish. In conclusion... What's the message of this passage? Number one, as Christians, we are free from the constant pressure of having to please God through our own good works. Don't fall into the trap of thinking, my standing before God, God's love for me, God's favor towards me, is dependent on Christ's death on the cross And all the good things that I'm doing to show God how deserving I am. That's why when people say this one got sick, ooh, maybe there's sin in their life. All this kind of stuff. It's all that kind of thinking that God does good and bad things towards us because of the good and bad that we're doing in life. Why do we pray in Jesus' name? It's to remind ourselves that when we approach God, it's in Jesus' name that we come. It's not in my name. Look, Lord. That's how the Pharisee prayed. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. I do not commit adultery. I pay my tithe. I do this and that. That man never went home justified. He was full of his own self-righteousness, even though he was probably a pretty good guy. It's in Jesus' name that we approach God. It's because of Jesus that we earn God's favor. And nothing more. What is the freedom that the Bible talks about, the meaning of freedom? It's the freedom to love others, the freedom to be less caught up in ourselves. It's the freedom from self-centeredness, self-absorption. That's what the how the gospel changes us. And finally, the call to the Galatians is to be gracious one another with one another. If you keep on biting and devouring other people, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. I hope today you've got a better grasp of what this passage is about, and specifically the three verses we've looked at today. Let's pray as we prepare our hearts for communion, and with those serving at the table, please come up and take your seat. Lord, this is an amazing passage that we've read, and we thank you that Paul wrote it Lord, our, our natural tendency is to, to want to do something to to contribute to our own salvation. We, we want to feel as though we're also pay, playing a part. Lord help us to understand that even our good deeds are like filthy rags in your sight that there is nothing we can do to earn your favor bar having faith in Christ and in his death for us. Forgive us, Lord, for alienating ourselves from Christ, for falling away from grace when we have sought to trust in anything else in addition to your death on the cross. And Jesus, we come now to remember your death for us as we symbolically eat bread and drink wine. Help us to remember your broken body and that we always approach God in the name of Jesus. Jesus. Help us, Lord, to to love our neighbor as as ourselves. To love others as you have loved us. And help us, Lord, not to speak critically to others. We want our words to be upbuilding, to be gracious, to be gentle. May we be a community, Lord, where Christ is seen. That all men may know that we are your disciples. Because of how we conduct ourselves and love one another. So this is our prayer today. Father God. Amen. Let's share communion together. And while we're having communion, we're going to sing that wonderful song in Christ alone. But let's... uh, have communion.
1: Still, when striving sees my comfort my orphan all Here in the love of Christ, I stand.
0: On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and broke it. And said, this is the new covenant that I'm establishing tonight. Eat this and do this in remembrance of me.
2: Our loving Heavenly Father, we have been reminded this morning from your word of why we are here to celebrate the Lord's death until he comes again. We acknowledge your own sinfulness that made that death upon the cross so necessary, so important. We acknowledge our self-centeredness, our selfishness, our self-involvement. And pray, O God, that you would forgive us. And we thank you that forgiveness is shown to us in the fact that Jesus took our sin in his own body to the tree. We remember that, Lord, because it's of utmost importance to us to know that you have been gracious unto us, for it is by grace that we have been saved, through faith, and that not of our souls, it was your gift to us. And so we give thanks for being able to be here this morning, for being able to share together as we take this bread in remembrance of the way in which Jesus hung upon the cross in our stead. We thank you, Lord, that we do not just look back, but we look forward because of that wonderful promise that this same Jesus, whom you have seen going up into heaven, shall so come in like manner. We thank you, Lord, that we have hope, that we have a future, that we have a destination, all because you bore our sin in your own body to the tree. Amen.
0: Let's pass out the bread and we'll eat together when everyone's been served. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for your wonderful gift to us. Let's eat together, remembering his death. What can wash away my sin? nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Yes, Lord, as we gather around your table and we drink from this cup, Lord, we remember your blood shed for us. For your word says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So we thank you, Lord, for what you did on that cross, that through your blood we have been forgiven through the giving of your life we have been restored and we can walk in righteousness before you so thank you for your great love for us in jesus name amen all right let's distribute the juice these trays do not have bases so make sure you use the handle and feel free to drink when you're ready This really is the high point of christian worship when we remember that it's all about jesus and it's his shed blood that wins us everything let's drink together to end our service by singing the remainder of that song in Christ alone. So let's stand and reflect on these amazing words. a minute to share something
3: Uh, I just want to thank this congregation which have been extremely special over these latter years of me trying to get my permanent residency visa I know many people have prayed for me some I know, some I don't know so this is my opportunity to say thank you and to say that my immigration attorney phoned me this week and uh, tomorrow I will be picking up my visa which is in his possession it hasn't been even to the end we had problems Um, and I just want to say that I haven't engineered it he asked me if I would meet with the media and I said not till I have that visa and he said I am asking you and I will be with you when you meet with the media I've already been in touch with them so tomorrow at 11 o'clock my immigration attorney and I will be meeting with the South African media to discuss my case. He says 11 years to wait for a visa is too long and this has to change. Thank you everyone.